Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman. This week on the podcast, we talk to my friend Derek Bondo, who is a commercial account executive at High Spot up in Seattle. We talked a little bit about his life in sales, first starting out at Nordstrom's doing shoe sales, then moving on to Mercedes Benz and eventually into software sales. And it's a really good look behind the scenes about how he's thought about his personal finances, managing commissions and variable cash flows. And we chat a little bit about his personal situation with without going too far in depth. And I think for anybody that's listening out there that's in that software sales world, this is going to be a fun adventure and a fun conversation to hear about life behind the scenes. And without further ado, let's bring on my friend, Derek Bondo. Hey, Derek Bondo. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. How are you? Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I am doing just great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is cool. This is uh, an, an interview I've been excited for. So you're an account executive at High Spot up in Seattle, right? And you're you're living that corporate sales life right now. So for someone that's totally in the trenches, that's had a really cool sales career, I'm interested for you to share with the listeners about some of the things you've been through, both on your corporate professional side, but also on your personal side, how you've managed finances, variable income and cash flows. So I think there's going to be some uh, valuable takeaways for our listeners. But before we dive too far in, Derek, just share with the listeners a little bit about where you grew up and what money was like at your house growing up. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Seattle native, which uh, seems to be fewer and fewer of us uh, each and every day, um, especially in the, in the tech circles. But you know, grew up with, uh, I think, a, a decent understanding of the, the importance of money. I, I remember vividly in, I think, kindergarten, maybe first grade, my parents sending me to school with like a gallon freezer bag, Ziploc bag full of coins that, uh, I don't know, I think I had maybe, you know, amassed some of them somehow. And my parents had, ro- and I had to roll them all up and take them in for uh, Washington Mutual came in one day and, you know, to get everyone started up with a, you know, a kitty savers account. No um, okay. And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, this bag of coins weighed almost as much as I did at that point. <laughs> awesome. When, when we counted it up, it was almost $40 or something. And that was kind That's of, uh, that was the start of, uh, of my introduction to finance. And, and, uh, I think that money is probably in an account somewhere. So if I, if I trace it back far enough, but that, yeah. uh, that that was the 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 value. You know, it, it didn't make sense to me at that point, but uh, the sure. value the value started there for sure. And you know, for so many people, like talking about the subject of money with parents can be really taboo. So, how much conversation do you feel like you had with your mom and dad, middle school, high school, college age, just about either their jobs or what they were going through, or your own personal money? What did that look like? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between my my two folks because um, you know they, neither of them had uh, like tremendously wealthy upbringings and um, were both the youngest and kind of had to look after themselves for a little bit. Um, but my mom, you know, she definitely was more of like the scrimper and saver. But then also, it was hard knowing kind of how much 
play money maybe was around in the house because my mom would make it seem like we were down to our last penny and then you know, but, <laughs> right and and then <laughs> and yeah and, and then we weren't but you know her mother <laughs> literally saved money to buy a well when she was growing up uh, in, in Woodby Island and and you know my dad kind of jumped straight into the business world and gotcha. um, you know from a young age and, and started supporting himself so I you know I think I got a good mix of uh, a little bit of a scarcity mentality but also mm. a good a good mix of you know, let's plan on being successful for, you know, as long as we're doing this no, um, cool. and, and, and somewhere in the middle, you know, is, is me. So, yeah. Well, uh, in a previous conversation, you've talked about how essentially for your career, you, you've been sales minded. And if there is such a thing, you've, you've got the sales DNA. So talk a little bit about like, um, actually first, maybe talk a little bit about your baseball career, because uh, that may have some implications for your business life. But just what did, what did your career look like as you started to graduate? from college. Yeah, it definitely is in my DNA. I mean, my, my grandfather was a real estate guy. My dad started in radio and parlayed that into uh, creative advertising and, and ran a couple shops in the Seattle area. Um, and then now is in the IT space. But I I was in sales even starting at like the age of 18. Um, officially, I think I was always trying to run some sort of a, <laughs> a play or a scheme in my younger years. But, cool. um, but uh, I, I, you know, I sold shoes in Nordstrom. And that, you know, maybe doesn't seem like uh, much for getting started in, in a sales world, but it was a commission job. And I was able to see one day to the next tweaks and changes that I made in my process or my approach. I could literally see from one day to the next, yeah. um, you know, the way yeah. that I would be rewarded when we would print out the stats and the sales for the very next day. And, um, you know, that, that was a natural fit for me. And then, and then, kind of got into some different spaces um, after graduation uh, in the car, car business, actually, before I landed in tech. I got you. Well, I want to hit on that. So shoe sales in Nordstrom's, I couldn't think of actually a, 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 a like a better sales environment for being able to have, you've got so much repetition. There's so much like body language. You can see people's face, their facial expressions mm -hmm. and like you're getting constant feedback, which would be so different from like us being on the phone today, you know, or in a corporate meeting. And so that just seems like actually a perfect space. I don't know. Would you even suggest that for, for young people or for eventually like your kids? Like, is that a good environment to be in? Well, it was it was a great place to cut your teeth because, as you might imagine, there's some tenured folks that work there and who are always willing to bestow some knowledge on you, especially if there's some slower times, you know, and everyone's kind of hanging out. And it really did. I mean, I I remember distinctly one day I I was just I was sitting around the middle of the pack for my sales numbers. And you know, let's keep in mind I was like 1920, and so even just showing up and doing kind of a half job uh, would net you like $17, $18 an hour, which is pretty dang good. But really knowing good. that, yeah, really, really good. But I, I, I would even just start to track myself how much time I was spending with each customer and gave myself a limit of 15 minutes. And that's not to say that I would, you know, be short with people or cut them loose because, right. you know, you spend good time with people and then they end up really liking the experience and maybe buying multiple pairs of shoes and or coming back. But the thing that I was able to realize is like, hey, there's times where you got to just 
maybe move on to the next thing and mm. and let people go and that's yeah. i mean that was just one of the ways i was able to make an immediate impact obviously in today's environment you know higher level sales you can't just make a change from one day to the next but it was a really good example of changing behaviors and habits and seeing positive outcomes yeah that's awesome well okay and you've also talked about you know working in car sales um, but it wasn't just like any place it was mercedes uh, which is so much more high end and not what not my immediate thought when I think about just like, you know, car sales or something that makes me think of like being an enterprise sales rep, you know, at the airport. So what was that <laughs> environment like? You can be your own boss. I don't know. That makes me think of yeah, the, the quote from the movie. But um, what, what's it like to be in an environment at Mercedes? What's the culture and how do you get, how do you interact as a salesperson? You know, I was really fortunate to go work in, a, in an establishment. Actually, it's one of the oldest Mercedes-Benz dealerships uh, in the entire world, uh, let alone the United States. Um, it was known for a long time as Phil Smart Mercedes-Benz, and um, Mr. Smart has since passed, But and there's some new ownership. But it, 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 first and foremost, it was great to work for a legacy organizations such as that and also the Nordstroms, because it gave me a really intense focus on the customer experience um, and, cool. and customer service and really yeah. like the good things that happened happen when you put that customer first. But from a sales experience, it was, you know, I was definitely kind of the, the young buck in that group, okay. um, which meant that I got a lot of similar to the, the working in, in the, the shoe department. I got a lot of, you know, tribal knowledge bestowed upon me from huh. you know people who have been around for a while and, and giving me some guidance, um, giving me some input on, you know, whether it was how to handle a bad beat you know a rough month to how to handle success and so it, you know, it was very familial and but but selling a product like mercedes-benz you're right it's not the typical car sales experience because i did have people that would take a year or more to buy a car but then all of a sudden they would buy multiple cars a year and or more to buy a car that's a long sales cycle isn't it it, it is, especially for a car, but people sometimes are planning for, you know, a year and a half down the road, they're going to retire, sell the house, get rid of the kids, whatever it may be, and then make that dream purchase that they've always wanted to make. So it was really a, a lot of continuing to pro provide value while still, you know, trying to maximize profit for yourself in the dealership. Huh. And I wonder what the measuring time periods here, you know, as a consumer, just on the outside, it seems like, you know, when I think about car car sales, like they're running promotions fairly often and they're counting their weekly or monthly sales targets. And I compare that to maybe other forms of businesses that are looking at quarterly or maybe even semi-annual targets. So it seems as if there's a greater focus on, you know, your 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 day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week activity. So what was that like from, like, what, what were sort of the sales scorecards like and how did you emotionally deal with, uh, I don't know, being under the microscope in that way. Yeah, it's uh, it's not fun being under that microscope, that's for sure. And the car business can have a bad reputation and it's not for uh, any bad reason at all. I would say there's probably a lot of disparity throughout that industry. But I, the, the classic example of kind of being under that microscope is every day, every Saturday morning, you're sitting in there in your sales meeting and you got your general manager and you got your general sales manager. And if you're unlucky enough, the owner's in there too. Oh boy. Um, and he doesn't want to be in there and at 8 a.m. any more than you do. Oh boy. Um, and everyone's going around the room. How many meetings do you have for today? And you would just have to say a number. And sometimes that number was 
embellished. And sometimes it was really true. Not really any way to know until the end of the day comes around and, hey, did all three meetings show up? And, hey, guess what? You sold three cars and you're a hero. You know, worst case scenario, you slide out with doing not much for the day and, yeah. uh, and not attracting a lot of unwanted attention. But it does go to show that it's a lot easier to, if you are able to plan ahead, set up appointments, set up meetings, it, you know, obviously reduces friction in your own personal life with your job and with your bosses, but you get a sense of like, oh, that, that really worked. You know, I set up the meetings, I went through the motions, I executed and you know, the numbers don't lie. I closed half of the deals or 60% of the deals or whatever yeah, it is. So yeah. for me, it was a good intro into forecasting, planning, prospecting, okay. um, and that sales isn't just a, a big smile and a handshake, that there is a lot of science behind it too. Yeah. Well, so something else I'm thinking about in terms of culture, um, you know, some corporate, modern corporate sales environments right now can be much more inclusive. It's like we've got our arms around each other. It's an abundance mindset. It's like, hey, if you make a sale, that doesn't directly take away from me. So like, go get them, Tiger. But it seems like, you know, if there's two people that come on a car lot and there's four car salesmen, like half of those people aren't going to engage with that new buyer. So I wonder if, and not that I have an experience, but tell me about how aggressive is the culture and how neck and neck are the employees there. Uh, are you talking about the car business or where I'm at? The car now? business. Yeah. You know, every dealership has a different system where my experience was pretty fair in the sense that they would try to do some sort of a round robin system of um, floor traffic as well as the phones and then the internet leads. It's an imperfect system for sure. And of course, there's going to be. Uh, there are going to be some tensions in particular scenarios, but I think at the end of the day, most people, they're just trying to focus on the fact that overall, does the whole store, do the whole dealership have enough traffic to support us all? Because it's not really just going to be about that one person you snagged when it okay. wasn't your turn, right? It's, okay. it's, if, 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 if people aren't coming in across the board, then everyone's starving. So it's That's fair. That's yeah, fair. yeah it's, it's a good, good mutual respect, I would say, from my experience. Talk to me a little bit about your transition out of Mercedes and then in the world of tech or tech software sales. So what did that look like and what stirred in you to make a change? You know, it's an interesting story. The reason I got into the car business is because it was just such an easy fit for me. Uh, having I've always been just a car nut, you know, it was like day one, I, I, I had a lot of the information that I needed just about the product. So that was never a barrier. Um, so I, I, I traveled uh, and played baseball for a few years after college. And once that the, the dust settled on that, I was ready to get a job. And that's when I went and um, started working for Mercedes-Benz. And that was great. Um, I was there for about three and a half years. It was a good fit. You know, I was making good money, like right out of the gate, albeit it was commission only, which presents its own sets of challenges. But, you know, 25, 26, had a crappy apartment, not a lot of bills. You know, it, it was a great fit. Yeah. It, it got to the point where, you know, I was staring down the barrel of, of 30 years old and having some friends that were working in technology, both in Seattle and, and San Francisco, you know, they were constant, not constantly, but they were ever so often were comparing, you know, life stories, exciting things that happened at work. And I had a yeah. friend who just kept kind of pestering me. He's like, you got to get in tech. You got to get in tech. How <laughs> much longer are you going to be spending, you know, in the dealership? And I knew it was probably a change I wanted to make, but I was happy with what 
what I was doing. And it, and it really just became a point where I think one day we, me and a buddy sat down and compared W2s and, uh, <laughs> the measuring stick comes out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, all, all friendly, you know, total sure. out of, out of love and respect. Cool, uh, cool. but I w- it was just like, here's my buddy working 50 hours a week, having weekends and all the holidays. And I feel like I'm working as hard, if not okay. twice as hard to make sure. less. And it just, it was a thing that I, it was a decision that I had to make. And it was definitely it was the right decision. I learned awesome things in my, my time doing what I did, but um, I, I wanted to make that transition before it was, you know, quote unquote, too late. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the too late piece is not so much for anybody that can't do something at a certain stage of their life, but of course. you know, you have, you have, kids or a spouse or, you know, properties and things like that. And it gets harder and harder to make that switch when, cause there's a little bit of starting over anytime you switch industries. Yeah, I gotcha. Well, I'm curious to shift gears a little bit and talk about personal finances and managing that. Have you, how, how you've done that on, you know, commission only, or eventually once you get some base and I recognize it's a, you know, it's an intimate subject. So you can certainly still, you know, keep a, a, a layer between you and, and what's actually in the numbers, so to speak. But, um, you know, I'm just curious for people out there, I think they, they struggle with knowing like how do how do I deal with all of this and there's a sense of stress when it comes to dealing with finances but it seems like it's been something that you've kind of enjoyed working on and educating yourself on so let's just start by you know tell me about the the the, the process for you educating yourself on personal finances and then we'll go through you know what that actually looked like in practice if you've gone through your career yeah absolutely I um so I, I think one of the best gifts I've ever received was a an account to TD Ameritrade that I received from high school graduation, hmm. and some of my family got together and I think they put you know five hundred bucks in there, some just simple stocks, Nordstrom, and a, and a few other things. But that really opened the door for me to have this vehicle and this avenue to experiment a little bit, to research. You know, and this is in the days, this would have been like 2004. So the online, you know, the free information online was not nearly what it is today. But sure. it was a place for me to get in and poke around. And, and, it, and having that reduced friction to actually like trading like or... That. Or, you know, I was only one step away as opposed to somebody saying, well, I don't even know where to go. Is it Charles Schwab? Is it Fidelity? Like, what is it? Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's small, but it's it's enough of a barrier to stop people. And so that's kind of what spurred my interest in that. I think, too, for a lot of people my age, you know, the economic downturn downturn was uh, was kind of scary enough to get people thinking about the good times aren't always going to be so good. Maybe it might last for 10, 20 years, but there's definitely going to be times that you you know are going to really hope that you had done the right things and, and have those emergency funds or, or set things aside. So I think it was just kind of like coming out of that economic downturn with a little bit of a foundation is what really mm-hmm. got my mind going and focusing on on wanting to save. Also, you know, not working when I'm 80 is a, <laughs> is a desire of mine. <laughs> as well. So, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's that's helpful. Yeah, as part of motivation. So like uh, early on, you know, if you're in an all commission job, how do you even think about setting money aside for fixed expenses versus variable expenses? What was the mm-hmm. process that you went through? I, I think the most important thing I did was I set my bar very low mm-hmm. for 
my monthly dues, as it were. So, you know, I I say this as I also was driving a brand new Mercedes, but it was an employee deal. So there's I'm laughing. Okay, sure. Yeah. It's employee deal. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, plus I had to keep up the brand and the image, right? I gotta drive the product. <laughs> but you know, I, it was like my apartment was very modest. It was actually very old. It was one of the oldest buildings in Seattle and it was right across the street from an enormously noisy bar. So it wasn't very expensive to live there. Okay. And I think with the commission piece, I just really paced myself until I had a good sense of, okay, this is going to work. I'm going to be here for a while. Um, I have the ability to, you know, step on the gas and do better, but kind of figuring out what that rolling average is and then just setting that bar really low, just knowing that some months you might take a vacation and and not do very well, or you might just have just like a total flop. And so setting that bar low, but also having that that reserve built up and and it took some time. And for me, I was fortunate because I lived at home for like six months before I moved out and was able to confidently make that transition. But I'd made a goal. I said, I'm living at home until I get to X, Y, and Z goal financially. And you know what? Staying at home when you're like 25 years old is a great motivator to to, (laughs) to get moving um, and get your own place. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, One of the other things I'm thinking about, you know, everyone's situation is different, granted, but you know, there's some there's some personal finance rule of thumbs like uh, emergency funds of three to six months. But I don't know what's your personal take of your your preference on how much you keep. You know, so do you do you look at it in that way? Like I've got such and such months set aside for as an emergency fund. What's been comfortable for you over the years? Yeah, I think you know if I had to count it now, I'm not sure where that number would be. I, I know that I'm beyond that that minimum of, of three months, but it was something that I was, you know, gosh, I, I was probably borderline obsessive about it until I got beyond, you know, a certain point and knowing that, okay, even if such and such happens, uh, worst case scenario, I'm going to be okay for a while. And there's, there's a lot of comfort in that. And, and you can garner a lot of confidence from just having that, that pillow. Um, it sounds, you know, it may not be flashy and it may not be extravagant, but I'll give you an example. I mean, I just took six months off before starting here at High Spot. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it was all, it was all gravy, but I, I at no point was I, was I panicked. Mm. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I haven't, big stocks or anything like that, or I haven't, you know, cashed out, you know, stock yeah. options or anything like that. This is just good old fashioned saving um, huh. and, and making some good moves. And, and I'll tell you, it was really nice to not, you know, have to worry about, I, I have to get back to work immediately because yeah. I've just strapped myself so high that I, you know, needed to pay my bills and stay alive. Huh. So. Wow, that's super. Wow, that's a cool story. And actually, that's um, it, it. It does feel nice when you have a when you know that you've got a buffer, and uh, that gives you a little bit of sense of security. Uh, two other quick questions on that: Is there an app that you've used? Just personal preference again. Like, how often are you reviewing this? And you know, is there a piece of software that you've used? Yeah, um, I really like the Mint app. For me personally, I notice I tend to use those apps more when things are going great and less when they're. <laughs> uh, less, I appreciate less. being honest. That's so true, right? You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when it's bad, it's like, well, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll go to a different. I'll go to Instagram instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing to see here. Yeah, okay, uh, just just a lot of red. So I really like Mint. Mint Mint is great. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of the banks that I use have um, started to incorporate something like. That, but I, I think the the really powerful thing is the Mint app shows like uh, your net wealth or your total yeah. savings month over month over month, and in sales, you know sometimes you 
start, you get really hot and you look back over a quarter or a half a year, or I mean, even a full year and you, and it's, it's really satisfying to see like, wow, I really, I made a, it seems so long when it's happening. And then, but we all know how fast a year goes by and you can look back and say, I made a big impact in my life and I brought myself a lot of freedom or did mm. something great for my family or my loved ones. And, and like, look at this, look at this freedom that I have now. I mean, to me, money is freedom and seeing when you can make those big steps over a period of time is, is very satisfying to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I, I have to take the opportunity to just bang the drum on a couple of key things and like core beliefs that I have as a financial planner, which you just kind of touched on. I think one of the first things is it's easy to be distracted by markets um, and up and down and wanting to kind of chase returns. But for many of us who are like in a building phase, this actually even applies to people who are up until maybe their mid to late 40s or early 50s. The biggest thing that you can do to uh, grow the net worth is simply just plugging away as the savings. You know, if you've got uh, $10,000 in there, you know, a 10% return on the market is going to be only $1,000. And so you might be stoked for your stocks, I got 10%, you know, but that, that moves the needle $1,000 versus if, you, if you're saving an extra $10,000 and you go from 10 to 20, like that, that moves the needle a lot faster. So just emphasizing what you're saying, Derek, I think that's important to be able to like look back and probably moving the needle comes from putting, setting money aside and doing it in whatever way you can. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. I, you know, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned that because we had a, a managing finances 101 class here yesterday. And, you know, I'm, I'm always I'm always keeping an eye out for opportunities with individual stocks just based on the things I hear in the news. And, you know, the, the times that I take action on them are much fewer than the times that I just kind of watch from the distance and then grovel that I didn't take a position. Yeah, but right. The, but the reality is, is like, even if an individual stock, like you said, goes up, 20% over the course of a month. I'm, I'm, I'm not investing. I don't, I'm not investing a hundred thousand dollars, right. To see, yeah, yeah, to yeah, see one thing, to yeah. see 20 grand come back. And even if I did, guess what? I'm going back to work on Monday. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it, you can kind of kick yourself a little bit from the sidelines, but the, the, the reality is if you look at a compounding interest table and everyone yeah. should do this, this was the, the wake up moment for me when okay. I was in college was seeing a compounding interest table yeah. and plugging those figures and seeing, mm. oh, oh man, it really like, yeah, if you can hit it big and get wealthy overnight, that's great. But the reality is most of us, even if we work for a company that like exercises, you know, some big liquidity event sure. and your stock options, you're probably still going back to work. Um, <laughs> yeah, so just batten down the hatches and, and play the long game, I think is, you know, oh, you, like you can play a little short game on the side for sure. sure Have a little on fun and because okay, those will add up, especially if you're, you know, right a few times, but yeah, that's it's not the reality for the most of us. And that's a hard pill to swallow because it's that's not really as glamorous. It's not as glamorous. Talk to us a little bit about real estate. You've shared that you, you know, were fortunate to uh, buy a small piece of property and you've been able to enjoy some some gains there. Certainly like the Seattle market has been uh, super hot like a few others. But like, you know, on the one hand, it's cool that you've seen it, it. It goes up and like that's part of your net worth. And on the other hand, it's like, well, shoot, this is kind of illiquid. Like, what do I actually do with this? So I'm just curious of like, what's your perspective? What's your take on uh, your real estate and how that's impacted you over the past couple of years? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because uh, I think this might be an opportunity to get some free advice out of you because uh, I, I, <laughs> there we go. I, uh, <laughs> uh, that's the only reason I came on here today, John, was to get, some, <laughs> okay, cool. get something out of it for me. 
it's an interesting position where, I mean, I, I really, I have to chalk it up to uh, not a ton of discipline. I was disciplined enough to save enough money to put a very nominal down payment um, down. But I really, if it weren't for the forcing hand of my parents and quite frankly, mostly just my mother, um, I'm not sure I would own any property in Seattle, but I took a jump when it was painful and I didn't think that I could actually afford it. But the bank said that I could, which coming out of the economic downturn, which also took a little extra trust. But uh. It's in a position now where that most actually the the largest percentage of my wealth is tied up in that investment, and it's a great sense of security, but it is also a little false. I mean, we're already seeing the market come back down now, and so trying to understand, okay, how comfortable can I be, but then also what's realistic because those aren't realized gains; those are those are just hypothetical until you you know sell the property or rent it out. And so I'm all I'm kind of seeking that guidance from someone like you, which is. Okay, I've got I've got investments, I've got cash, I've got I've got retirement accounts. What do I what sense do I make of or how do I treat this equity that I have in this real estate because I'm living in it right now. I'm yeah. not getting rid of it. So for the long term it'll probably continue to do well for me, but I, you know what I mean, what do I do? Yeah, well, that's great. Um, obviously, I, you know, your situation is unique and we'd have to go more to get a profile, but I actually want to take it, the opportunity to chat a little bit about this because listeners either may be interested or in the similar situation. And so if I'm thinking about, this is, I, I was going to say, I'm thinking about a balance sheet and thinking about some accounting, but I want to make a side note, like I'm not a CPA. So for all of you like uh, finance nerds out there, accounting nerds, like don't come back and point a finger at me. But I'm just saying from my perspective, when I look at the balance sheet, the primary residence, you know, your, your primary home and piece of real estate is more of a liability than it is an asset. And that's a hard thing to be able to say and swallow. Like I want for my home to be an asset, not a liability. But um, that, that while that is, you know, it may be equity and that may be an asset, it's actually not producing anything like normal assets would. You know, a normal asset it was going to be producing some type of growth or income. And that could go all the way up and it could go all the way back down but you still need a place to live. And so I think one thing, uh, just as a sobering note for many people when they think about their personal real estate, like it's great when it goes up, but it is a completely a bonus. It's completely something on the side. And it's really difficult if I'm thinking forward, like starting with the end in mind about how can I design financial freedom for myself? You know, you need to make some, either you decide to, to, to un unlock that equity in that home and you could, you could definitely do that. People can do that. But for, for other people that need either like to support a family or you're going to live somewhere for a long period of time, it's unlikely for that equity to be unlocked in a way that it's going to produce growth or income in the future. So sobering note, just you know, un, uh, understand what assets you have in play. Each one is created differently. I actually have a podcast on that, on um, you know, talking about how different pieces of assets are created with different timing taxes and tools. And so, uh, you know, it's just part of the part of everyone's unique financial situation. And maybe offline, we could talk more about it. But that's my initial thought on it without rambling on too long. Yeah, well, thanks for bursting my bubble. <laughs> yeah, you're. I, I was happy to do it, and uh, in front of everybody. So yeah, of course. Um, well, you know, on the flip side, so you know, you, you're, you're somebody that's 
worked hard, saved hard, uh, you, you've built up the muscle memory. And so I think having that muscle memory and understanding the idea of compound growth and playing the long game, like you've got, you certainly have a, a, a lot riding on you. So you got a lot of good chips in the table. But um, yeah, I want to switch gears and, and talk a little bit more about like, what would, what, what are some things that you've learned that you'd be interested in sharing with others? You know, if we just sort of open this up, like, what would you either tell uh, your younger self or somebody that's in a similar situation to you, but you've been able to learn through all these different life experiences? Like, what are some of the mantras that you feel like are important to you now? Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's something that, uh, to try and define it into, or to try and package it into a singular mantra, I, I think, I don't have a lot of regrets, but I will say that one thing where I think I left some money on the table and I swear I didn't mean that I did not intend that pun, but, uh, I, I didn't, I, as, as much as I was introduced to the value of saving, I, I didn't do it enough when I was even like in college or something like that, where, you know, I would go home for the summer and work and maybe make a few thousand dollars and save none of it because in my mind I needed all of it. And you know, I'm like, why would I, why would I save $200? Or if we even take, you know, let's say I make three grand <laughs> yeah. and I save the 10%, why would I save $300? Like I need all of it right now. $300 isn't going to do anything for me. <laughs> uh, and it's not going to do anything for me tomorrow. But I think if I could have better understood you know, look, youth is wasted on the young, right? So I, there's no way maybe I could have understood it, but the fact that it's a habit and that it's just something that you do as a, as a, as an impulse, as a reflex, always, always be saving. You know, Alec Baldwin notoriously said, always be closing. Yeah. I'm here to, I'm here to tell you always be saving. Because, I and I, and I have friends that did it and they did it from a young age, working at Costco, working at, you know, wherever, but just every little bit. And then next thing you know, you're 25 and you got 10 grand saved up. You have a lot more flexibility than somebody who's like, Oh man, I got like $500 in my name. And it's, cool. and it, that's, it's really a, a, an attitude that, should carry through the rest of your life, but it's hard to understand that value. I think when you're young and you don't, you don't feel like the income is, is regular or you're, it's going to take forever to get to a goal. I would say you just, you just got to do it. Just start, start now and, and just always do it. And so another thing that you've talked uh, with me about offline before is just sort of what you feel like is the importance of like knowing yourself. So what does that, how does that have an impact when we deal with our personal finance? How can knowing myself, you know, make any, make any impact on what I do with my dollars? You know, it's, I've, I've kind of always operated from a little bit of a, a scarcity uh, standpoint, which is great up to a point that holds you back. And it's taken, you know, uh, almost a proverbial shoulder shaking from some friends to, you know, tell me, hey, loosen up a little bit, like in, <laughs> okay. enjoy yourself. You're right. Like you're not, you're not two steps away from the poorhouse. And, you know, so you have to couple that, that input and that feedback with knowing your own comfortability, like don't do anything that doesn't feel comfortable to yourself, but also knowing yourself, I think means that if you think you're someone who's a little starry eyed and gets kind of uh, over consumed with an idea that, you know, you're onto something that's going to make you fabulously wealthy. I mean, by all means, flush it out, seek it, see what you can do with it, but let's be modest in our expectations and realistic. And so if you are just going to take some, some cash assets as an example and make an investment, let's, let's just be smart about it and, and yeah. know that, 
you have X dollars to maybe lose. And if you do lose it, it's going to sting and it's going to burn and hurt your pride a little bit, but it's not, it's not going to set you back a bunch. But the inverse of that is if you think you're, if you think you see something, you know, take action. I've got way more missed opportunities and I have ones that I've executed on and, you know, just from, just from watching and then standing and watching and then, if you just continue to watch, then that then it's nothing. It's just a it's just a great idea that you didn't act on, um, and that's yeah. almost worse than getting burned on the one that, uh, yeah. that you thought was going to be good. You know, so. I'm curious. That makes me think about somewhat of a tangent, but it makes me you know think about this idea of risk tolerance. And your your classical financial planner, financial advisor, is going to define risk tolerance in the terms of like you know stocks and bonds and an asset allocation. But if we push all of that sort of fluffy definition aside when it comes down to it, one of the things that I've experienced with clients of mine that have been in sales, and this is just my own observation, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, but like it seems that my clients that have been in sales because they're taking maybe some risk with their job and there's variable fluctuations in income, that their actual investment thesis is a little bit less risky and less risk taking than other people that I have that might be in a, just a pure salary job. And, and they, they, you know, those people that are in pure salary job, the only way for them to get risky or, you know, into uh, improve their net worth is to, you know, go crazy with their stock investments. So it's like the guy that's in sales has a lower risk tolerance and the guy that's not in sales and management has a higher one. How have you experienced it personally? And have you heard anything similar or different from coworkers that have been in sales? You know, I think it's just relative to your personal situation. And so, you know, when I made the transition from working in the car business, which was commission only to going into a technology sales position that was base and commission, I wasn't I wasn't worth enough for a company to make a big gamble on me from a base compensation standpoint. So I was making less money when I immediately transferred. And that's something that will change over the course of a particular person's career. So I think that you kind of have to treat sometimes your variable compensation as all your icing on the cake. And if you can learn to just operate within what that base is, and then everything, all your, your variable is, is icing on the cake, you're going to set up kind of some stop gaps or some safety, safety nets for yourself. Um, now, and then to that end, if you do have a, a good quarter, a good year, you've got some good bonus checks, commission checks, whatever. I think, you know, your traditional rules of savings don't really apply because the traditional rules are built for people who get the same amount every two weeks. And so they're just kind of chipping away. Because if I were if I were to take some of the bonuses I've received in my time and only save like 20%, I'm not sure what I would be doing with that other money, yeah. um, yeah. just burning a hole in my pocket. And so maybe <laughs> maybe you do portion some of that out into taking taking a chance on on some yeah. things but i'm sure that's something that you advise your your uh, clients on right yeah, uh, that's true. Um, and you're right, it is individualized. And, um, and and it can even shift within someone's career, depending on, you know, is your spouse working or not? Or did you buy a house or not? Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, those, other, those other life experiences can change the risk tolerance for sure. Um, I'm cu- curious, like, again, shifting gears, let's think about like, kind of goals or thinking off into the future, Derek, like, um, let's compare and contrast. I've got some clients that have been entrepreneurs and for somebody that starts a business, like asking about the word retirement might sound weird because they think of themselves as like, well, I'm, I'm always going to be doing this job. Um, but that might be different for folks that, that don't want to, or just 
you know, haven't built their own business. And, uh, and I'm probably in a situation where I'm never going to do that either. So like, how, how do you define success from your, from your, from your professional career standpoint? And is there ever a time that you actually want to have a, a quote unquote true retirement or does it look like something different? Yeah, if I could retire right now, I absolutely would. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but that's not happening anytime soon. So plan B is, you know, for me, I, I always want to be growing. And I'm in sales. I'm an account executive. I've been a, an account executive. I, I really have liked working um, for the last two companies that I've worked for because they've been high growth and or hyper growth, like Highspot is right now, which brings a lot of extra responsibilities and the opportunity to pitch in. Um, and I think those, those opportunities are out there. You just have to grasp them. No one is going to hand them to you. And I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make is they operate under an assumption that people who manage them or, or who, who they report to will automatically know what you want as an individual. Mm. Like you get passed up for the, uh, this opportunity and it's like, well, you mm. should, you know, how, you didn't know that I wanted that. Well, how how would anyone know that unless you go and let them <laughs> let them know that that's something that you want? It might be two years down the horizon. But you have to you have to you have to let people know that. So I think for me, I just I'm happy with the types of organizations I've been with because it allows me a lot of opportunity to provide input. I think for me in my career, I want to get to a place where I am able to make more high-level strategic development decisions for a company. You know, I love sales. I love interacting with customers, but I, I do see a, a time where I get to be more involved with like the direction and the future of a company. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think those positions exist for, for, can exist for quite a number of years. And then even in, you know, kind of maybe like a typical consulting quote unquote job after, yeah. Yeah. you know, after yeah. you're all done. So. Oh, that's so cool. Well, Derek, we've covered a ton of ground. This is so much fun to talk about. I really appreciate you being just authentic and open and sharing a lot of your personal story before we wrap up. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to be able to share about your experience or anything that's uh, important to you? Yeah, I would say to anybody, if you're ever feeling unmotivated, it's probably time to to start looking for the door and finding the next thing. I think too many people get caught in a trap where they're they're afraid of what's outside that door. And maybe I'm just saying this as somebody who's gone through the experience and and feeling like I'm better for it. But yeah. it, you got to you got to stay motivated and you got to stay hungry. And there are other things out there, even if you're not sure that they exist. There's something out there that's going to light a fire in your belly. Um, mm. You just got to you just got to go find it. Mm, awesome, Derek. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate your insights and your time, and hope to chat again soon. Absolutely, John. Appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to the John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.